0: You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 26.
1: Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall.
0: Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guest is Leo Stiegler, the general manager of Ringier Africa, publisher of the popular Pulse media brand. You can connect with him at Leonard Stiegler on LinkedIn. Leo is passionate about Africa's digital media and marketing sectors. For the last five years, he has led the expansion of Ringier, a 200-year-old Swiss media giant, into Nigeria, Ghana, and Kenya's booming digital media markets. Leo is quickly establishing Ringier as one of Africa's leading digital media brands. In July, Ringier reached a total of 169 million users across its platforms. Before Ringier, Leo was at the forefront of Africa's e commerce as one of the co founders of Jumia Nigeria. He later served as the CEO of Startup Partners Africa, a Lego space internet incubator. We talked about Leo's early fascination with Sub-Saharan Africa, his experiences in Nigeria's budding e-commerce, and the vast potential of Africa's digital media. He's an adamant believer in local content and the power of video, saying, if a Nigerian is spending his or her last Kobo, it will be on video. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Leo Stigler. Leo, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Thanks a lot, Victoria, for having me.
0: So I'd love to know, what projects are you working on right now that have you really excited?
2: So at the moment, we are obviously doing our operations in Africa with Ringier, where we both work in the media field, where we run uh, digital media platforms across the continent um, under the brand name Pulse. So we have Pulse.NG in Nigeria, which is a leading publisher in this country online, in Ghana, in Kenya, and some other markets. And we also, as part of our media group, run marketing for companies specifically in the digital field. So we run the digital marketing for many big companies in Nigeria, Ghana, and other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And then the other side, we run a marketplaces group where we have platforms in the space of jobs classifieds, property classifieds, cars classifieds, and horizontal marketplaces where people buy and sell goods online across many markets in sub-Saharan Africa as well. So this is where most of my focus is at the moment. When I'm not on that, I'm supporting some other startups across the continent to do their business, but I'm mostly uh, here in Lagos, in Nigeria, and then travel quite a bit in the region as well.
0: Oh, okay. I thought you were based in Zurich.
2: No, I'm based in Lagos, Nigeria.
0: When you first moved to Lagos, I want to say in 2013. Do I have that right?
2: 2012, actually. 2012. Uh,
0: yeah. And what have been the major yes. changes in the last six years that you've seen?
2: So obviously, when I came, we first started what is now uh, Drumia. Drumia Jumia being obviously an e-commerce company now across the continent. We started it out of Nigeria. And I think at the same time, the Jumia business was also started out of uh, Morocco. But at that point in time, obviously, specifically physical e-commerce in Nigeria wasn't a big thing. So this was really, I think, championed in the last, yeah, almost six years now. This is, I think, a major difference. I think at the same time, what I've seen is a major influx of investment into the digital space in those years from the likes of Y Combinator, Techstars and co. from America. You obviously have uh, strategic investments from around the world, specifically from China. And then I think in the past years on the investment side, also with the foundation of uh, the European tech funds, you know, the TLCOMs, the focused funds of Partech and Orange, for the African continent, quite a bit of change there, I think, where it wasn't possible to raise money for tech startups, you know, earlier. I think this is more and more possible, even if it's from foreign funds. Yeah. I think apart from that, obviously, Nigeria has changed, you know, quite a bit when it comes to, things, small things like, you know, transportation on a daily basis. You know, obviously, Uber wasn't there when I first arrived. Now Uber, now the competitor, Taxify are obviously known quantities and, you know, often used. And I think, you know, many other things, you see more international companies moving in. And and so also the, the city of Lagos is changing and has changed quite a bit in the past years.
0: How so? I mean, I was last there, I think in 2000, oh, it's been a while. I want to say 2015. And I had previously been there in 2012 and I was just struck by the building that was, you know, on, you know, Lekki yeah, on the islands, Lekki Koi, Victoria Island. But like what other kind of changes have really struck you in Lagos?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great example. You know, when you think about the islands and specific kind of the Leckie axis that has just grown far, far out, these half islands that are stretching from Victoria Island and Leckie phase one. And now there is, you know, a lot of building, a lot of development going on, as you say, obviously plans for new airport and, and many things just in the sheer kind of growth of the city. I think, you know, other thing that when you arrive in Nigeria from the first minute, I think the airport is much better now. Yeah, than it was than it was earlier. Oh, I yeah, hope I, so. In case. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think there's definitely developments going on everywhere. Yes, from the roads, still, you know, still obviously challenges, but from the roads to, you know, if you're here maybe with a different cultural background and you like different kind of foods, I think there's definitely you know more restaurants, more bars than there were, I think, when I first arrived in Nigeria. So I think there's an interesting influx of cultures from around the world happening. I think also younger people coming to Nigeria, younger people coming back. You know, a lot of, I think, Nigerians that have studied abroad coming back and championing new things, new experiences, you know, in the entertainment space, you know, from new cinemas to theater experiences to many, many other things. I think that have developed, I think, very much in Lagos in the past years. Mm,
0: Great. And kind of before we dive into your entrepreneurial journey, you know, I'd love to get a better sense of where you're from and your backstory. You're German, and I believe you come from a small city in the south. Which one is that?
2: (laughs) So the city where I'm from is actually called Wurmersheim, which literally translated means the kind of the village of the village that is so small like a worm. So it's Ooh. a very small, <laughs> small town, really a village. Um But it's very near a another kind of city that's a bit more known. It's called Baden-Baden. Um, Baden-Baden is near the Black Forest. So this whole region is kind of in this three country corner of uh, Germany, Switzerland and France. So kind of. Uh, southwest of Germany.
0: Oh, okay. I know Bavaria, Franconia very well because my sister's been living there for almost 20 years working for Adidas. So oh, cool.
2: Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And
0: yeah. So, and I read in a Forbes article that you attribute your interest in Sub Saharan Africa to your mom because she would sell artisanal goods, I imagine from many places, but including Africa, you know, in local fairs. And that piqued your interest early on in the continent. Can you tell us more?
2: Yes, sure. So in Germany, I think in Europe, in many countries around the world, there are those shops, I think, fair trade shops that are based on that that value of uh, fair trade in the international kind of trade relations with, you know, smallholder farmers, artisans from different countries, and that are really focused on selling those kind of products and they're often you know run by, by people that do this pro bono so it's not a hugely kind of profitable business it's more so to kind of highlight and showcase what is possible if you know goods sold and you know on a fair level with the with the people that they are bought from and sourced from originally and we had one of those fair trade shops in our small town in kind of one village further and my mum was one of the kind of volunteers working there and I think she told me look Leo maybe apart from school and football and and all of the other things you do, maybe it could be interesting for you to work there and volunteer there sometimes Um, I don't remember whether I was 100% thrilled at the first thought of that but um, definitely uh, joined in And, you know, it became very interesting. I was like 16 years old at the time. So I, you know, was maybe a bit more focused on kind of what I was doing uh, apart from school and then necessarily in sports and things like that than necessarily those global questions. But at the same time, I think, you know, my mom saying that I was interested. So I joined there and I worked as a volunteer and working there, I got Very interested quite quickly to understand a bit more what the reality was in those countries where some of these goods were produced from. You know, obviously just one snapshot of that, but definitely to learn more. And I got a chance to go to Ghana when I was 17 years old, when I was still in high school for like a month, which was somewhat of a cultural trip to stay in a village near uh, near Accra. Odupong of Akkor, a bit of north of Accra in Ghana. And I really was struck by the, you know, the many young people that were there. I think the, you know, excitement for, I think, also exchanging with different cultures, I think, in this village, specifically in these towns.
0: Mm. Well, and also you... I think one of your very early work experiences is that you were volunteering or maybe you had an internship at GIZ at the German Development Agency in Uganda.
2: Exactly. So this was when I was, when I then graduated from high school, I took a gap year to go to Uganda for one year, obviously in East Africa, because really I kind of developed a more of an interest also in international economics. I wanted to study economics, so I really wanted to kind of dig deeper, also go to a different place in Africa, because obviously, you know, already then I was very aware that there's many different realities kind of on the continent. So then I got the chance to work for actually two organizations in East Africa, in Uganda that was on the one side, the GIZ, as you say, at the time still it was called GTZ, which kind of technical cooperation, now it's international cooperation by the German government, kind of working with governments working with uh, different stakeholders on certain development topics, kind of like the DFID or the development of uh, USAID in the US from different governments. This is the one for Germany now called GIZ. And then the other side I was also working with a German political foundation, the Friedrich Ebert Foundation for some time, which is a foundation that specifically works with trade unions, which works with political parties that not necessarily in power at the time, so that very much takes care of kind of the political discourse and the rights of laborers, the rights of kind of people on the ground. So I kind of saw... Different aspects there in terms of development cooperation uh, that were going on from an international a government and international organization a point of view.
0: And while you were in Uganda, did you were the wheels starting to turn of like, oh, whoa, I really want to come back and like set up a business in Sub-Saharan Africa, or like you were kind of maybe subconsciously looking out for business opportunities? I mean, had that seed been planted, kind of the entrepreneurial seed, or maybe not
2: yet? Yeah, I think you got it absolutely right. I think definitely during this time um I grew, at least for myself, the belief that investment into private sector opportunities on the continent, I think in general, definitely have to play a big role when it comes to unlocking opportunity. And this was definitely one interest that I saw for myself as well. And so when I then went to university, I think I already had very much the focus to say, okay, how can I potentially come back and actually do something in business in Africa, potentially after the studies, yeah.
0: You know, you studied at the London School of Economics. And around that time, also you worked at the Boston Consulting Group. And is that how you got connected with Manuel and Peter at Zando?
2: So when I was at university, I started a charity. So a charity in the UK That was focused on getting students to work in international organizations, as well as with private sector companies focused on development in some capacity. Because my conviction was after doing, as you say, an internship and other work with the Boston Consulting Group and also in investment banking, my conviction was that if people can contribute already for three months in kind of this kind of environment, why do they need to have a Ph.D.? before they can potentially work at least in some capacity oh yeah, um, the, the, and yeah. Internet-
0: <laughs> well and just to jump in here it's like the phd phenomenon is just such a german thing like i've never known a country where so many people have phd's
2: <laughs> yeah i think it's a good thing but i don't know i, I don't mean have it's one, so. <laughs> well it, it no i
0: mean it is a good thing but it means you have a lot less work experience And you have people who are students, you know, like well into their early 30s. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So,
2: (laughs) no, I think that's But you know, I guess what I was thinking at the time was, yes, I think it's, it's very important to be properly trained and not to do, you know, funny things in development that don't help anybody. But obviously, you know, clerk work. That you know that focuses on you know assessing certain processes or you know just learning also more about the environment or the, the the sector of development work development cooperation to have more people interested in it in how do we potentially support you know certain countries you know to do better in different KPIs as part of this charity I was also getting students to work with a company that Manuel Koser was working at at the time which was in the sector of banking in Africa and was setting up a Pan-African Banking Group, and he got to know me via this, and I think then when he, obviously he and Peter were starting together with, obviously, Rocket Internet in South Africa, Zando, which is the kind of South African equivalent to Zalando, a fashion e-commerce company, he was looking for people that were interested to help him set this up, and I guess at the time he thought, maybe I could be help for that, and so that was kind of my introduction to e-commerce in South Africa via manual course, yeah.
0: You went off to South Africa. You lived and worked there for six months for Zando. And as you said, this was your first experience with e-commerce. It was your first time working in a startup environment, first time in sub-Saharan Africa. What was your major takeaway from that experience?
2: I think my major takeaway was that working in Cape Town, I think, at the time was, you know, a little bit too, you know, easy living, so to say, for me. I didn't feel like that I was really at the cutting edge, so to say, you know, of development of Internet business on the continent. Obviously, Sando was and is a success kind of in the E commerce uh, space on the African continent. But obviously, you know, Cape Town, as anybody that has traveled to Cape Town and other places in Africa, is not necessarily representative of many other places on the continent. So my interest being to work on opportunities and unlocking. The opportunity gap on the continent wasn't necessarily fulfilled in Cape Town. I was obviously happy you know, with the work there, but I was very eager to do more on the continent. So I kind of jumped on the opportunity to go to Nigeria and develop what then become uh, Jumia. So a kind of takeaway that you know, at the time, Cape Town wasn't, so to say, my main interest.
0: Right. And that resonates with me. I've been to South Africa. I don't even know it that well. But the couple times I've been, it's very comfortable. But I would just feel like this isn't kind of, I couldn't have as much impact or kind of do the things I wanted to do because it is so developed and markets are more saturated. And yeah, it's just not enough of a frontier.
2: Yeah. As you say, I think it's a great market. It's a great place to be. But I think that there are uh, many opportunities on the continent that I was eager to explore. And that's why, you know, I was really happy to kind of be obviously in an environment where a quick change, so to say, was possible. I've since been back to Cape Town quite a bit. Obviously, also great companies situated there that work for the continent. And I'm spending a bit more time in Cape Town now. But I think only after really having seen many other places and having worked also in many other places, places across the continent.
0: Where do you have work experience, like extensive work experience in the continent?
2: Since being with Zando, which obviously was a fashion e-commerce company, then going to set up Jumia in Nigeria, I obviously have spent a lot of time in the last six years in Lagos, in Nigeria, but also specifically then for the last five and a half years, helping Ringier to set up on the continent. I've spent a lot of time in Accra, in Ghana. I've spent a fair amount of time in Dakar, in Senegal, in French-speaking Africa. Not so much, but I still want to. So it's very interesting that you have experience in Abidjan, in in, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, This is definitely somewhere I've been a couple of times, but not extensively. I've then been quite a bit in Nairobi, in Kenya, where well, we have a, a big office, visited and worked since we have business in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, in Ethiopia, and then still have been back quite a couple of times in Kampala in Uganda, which is all of those countries that are named where we with Ringye are doing media, marketing, or and or marketplaces business. And apart from that, kind of on the conference level, spent fair bit of, amount of time in, in Rwanda, so Kigali, a little bit in DRC and a few other countries. But mm. those kind of eight countries... I named other countries that Ringe is doing business in, which is why I spend a lot of time with our teams on the ground there.
0: Got it. So let's get back to how you connected with the guys from Jumia or like how you got involved. So what was the story there?
2: So Jumia was originally founded and funded with the support of Rocket Internet, just like Zando in South Africa was So this was essentially a German Internet investor saying we see similar trends that we have seen in Southeast Asia, in in Latin America, in Europe. Around, you know, uptake of mobile, uptake of commerce. So we want to obviously invest on that continent and find people that are eager, as eager as we are to set up companies, I think, on the ground. And so the Sando-Jumia connection was kind of what allowed me to then, together actually at the time, also with Manuel Koester and Peter Allersdorfer that you already named, to then start uh, setting up, which was at the time in Nigeria, actually, we set up two companies, little kind of insider story. We set up two companies. One which was actually focused on fashion e-commerce, which at the time was called Sabunta, and another which was focused on more electronics and other kind of other goods, which was called Kasua. And the merger of those two companies in Nigeria um, then formed uh, Jumia. so other people that were involved at that time, that was 2012, beginning of 2012 in Nigeria were Tunde Kehinde, who is now running Ace and Lydia, very successful um, companies, uh, startups uh, out of Nigeria, and Rafael Lafado, who originally Ghanaian, Tunde is originally Nigerian. Rafael Afado is now doing supermarch.ng out of Nigeria, which is in, also in e-commerce space for groceries. Hmm. So this was kind of the group of people that was involved kind of in the foundation of Jumia, but it was very much with the strong backing of Rocket Internet, then also facilitated additional investment into Jumia at the time.
0: Yeah, no, I think the Jumia story is fascinating because if you look at all of the talent that all of the people who were involved in the very early days in Jumia, Nigeria, and kind of what they've gone on to do subsequently, it's pretty fascinating. Like you've named, you know, all of these startups and they're like all ex-Jumia people I mean I imagine that it's like the skills that you learned there you know that it was almost like doing an MBA you know or it was just like a place where you could really learn a lot you know and be kind of on the cutting edge of e-commerce in a market like Nigeria and kind of with what you've learned you're able to go out and set up your own startups I mean it's a fascinating story just for that angle
2: Yes and I would say from perspective of I think that you know Rocket Internet has gotten, you know, in the past some flag for its impact on ecosystems or the way how it's doing business, you know, kind of in the press, etc. I think if you look at, at Rocket Internet in many markets, actually Southeast Asia, Latin America, Europe included, when you look at the ecosystems kind of a couple of years down the line, a lot of involvement, you know, a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs were actually formerly in rocket internet companies, were trained up because obviously what rocket internet does do is to bring in investment, is to bring in, you know, additional interest into the markets. And so I think this impact specifically, I would definitely see as a positive one when it comes to uh, building up uh, early interest from international investors, um, training up some professionals and later entrepreneurs as well.
0: What is kind of the criticism of Jumia or excuse me, of a- Rocket internet?
2: Well I think the question I think that is being asked is whether sustainable businesses coming or have come out of the rocket internet investment sphere. Why? Because obviously the growth of many of these companies has been very rapid and not necessarily all of the companies, just like any other investment company, have then in the end become successful. I think this kind of speed and the sheer the sheer size of the investments in the time frame that they have been deployed, I think are, you know, and then obviously being a foreign investor in, in basically most of its markets, apart from Germany, that Rocket Internet has been in. I think this combination is a little bit where potential doubts arise. However, you know, from my point of view, I think when you look at positive aspects of building up ecosystems, again, building up talent, again, many of the companies have made money for the investors. So from my perspective, at least, and I don't want to speak for the experiences of other people, I don't see uh, generally investment into ecosystems where before there wasn't as much investment as a bad thing.
0: Mm, Right. It's just, it's a specific model, you know, that really prioritizes, like you said, growth kind of over, you could argue, revenue. It's like the Uber model of, you know, build quickly, build the infrastructure, develop the market, try to stimulate the demand. And so then you can kind of gain market share.
2: Yes, but obviously, as you say, this is, I think, the model of many companies around the world, many beloved companies, yeah, from Netflix, you know, as you say, to Amazon, how Amazon was built, to Uber, to many modern startup companies. I think the speed in which management decisions are made at Rocket Internet, I think, on many levels has, you know, sometimes raised, so to say, questions. But again, I think when I look at it from my perspective on a net-net level in terms of impact on an ecosystem from what comes from it, which is investment into the countries, into the businesses, and into the talent, I think that these aspects are all to be seen in my opinion quite positive.
0: Mm. And why didn't you want to stay and build Jumia? Why did you decide to co-found Sabunta and then to move on to another company?
2: So I was quite interested to doing more different business models. I think the e-commerce business model is obviously fascinating and hugely important also for the development of markets. But I had an interest to also look at, you know, at other spheres because then scaling a business from, I think, at the time when I left, which was then, you know, Jumia, which was maybe about, say, 300 people in Nigeria, to then scale this, which essentially would have been more of the same. Obviously, interesting challenges again, but essentially in the same field. For me, the interest was where are there other impactful things happening in the in the digital ecosystem that I can be a part of? And I think when it comes to now, what we're doing now with Ringye, which is media, yeah, which really touches many many different parts of the ecosystem and actually far beyond from you know culture to entertainment to politics to kind of human interest that's happening in these countries that we're acting in to the second thing we're doing in our media group which is marketing kind of helping companies across the continent do um, cutting edge digital marketing kind of on the level that is you know international working with all of the platforms that you know that are available to them to then marketplaces, which are service marketplaces, essentially you not know, touching how to get a job for young people, obviously huge gap of much, much unemployment in the market like Nigeria, how to get the right jobs connected to the right people to bridge that with digital tools to marketplaces on property, you know, where it's real estate. Obviously, we talked about it, a hugely growing factor in, in industry in, on the continent and being part of that value chain. So interesting models. And I talk kind of a lot more about very, very interesting different aspects that can be touched and are being touched through digital with the platforms that we're doing now, as opposed to kind of, you know, being focused for the next five to 10 years on e-commerce alone.
0: When you decided to leave uh, Jumia, you also, for a couple of years, you were involved with the Startup Partners Africa, which was I believe an internet kind of, it was an internet incubator. Is that right?
2: Yes, absolutely. So what we there did was uh, different people that were interested in, again, this growing ecosystem on the continent and we did kind of first tries of investment, incubation also in the e-commerce space, in Nigeria specifically, but found, I think, on those models that we were going into, which were in the field of, you know, kind of niche e-commerce. so, uh, be it for the beauty industry, be it for the glasses industry and sunglasses and those kind of things, we saw that this was quite early for this market. So because of that, kind of refocused our investments and are still investing together, but have refocused kind of our investments into other fields, so more of the kind of infrastructure. So what I mean, like payments and things like this. But this was essentially kind of a, a setup to support investment. At the time, also, as you say, incubation, but those specific niche e-commerce, you know, examples, so to say, we assess that this was too early, which I do believe when I look at the development since then, in e-commerce was right at the time. E-commerce, I think, is still challenging on the continent when it comes to demand compared to the challenges of logistics, payment et cetera, et cetera. So yes, but this was the story, I think, behind this startup partners investment partnership that we did at the time.
0: Okay. And now let's dive into Rangier and kind of your experience there. And for our listeners who don't know, Rangier is Switzerland's largest media company. And I'm really curious to know, you know, you spent, I mean, this was already, I want to say three years, almost four years that you were working for startups before you joined Renge.
2: So I was working for in different startup capacities for, I think, only about two years, yeah? Okay. Uh, not, not that okay. long, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: But kind of what made you decide to leave the startup space and to join a large corporate?
2: I think the feeling that it didn't feel like a large corporate at the time, yeah, I would say. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think it still does. I think Ringy, obviously, is a special case, I would say, in terms of larger corporates in that it's a family-owned company still. So it's uh, 185 years old, originally out of Switzerland, and also in Switzerland, the leading international media company, Uh, but it is family owned, meaning that obviously decision making and uh, values and trust are very much, you know, kept on that kind of family level, which I think makes it very similar, so to say, to a, a startup where I think it's in the end up to the founder, And the, you know, and his team or co-founders to really make, so to say, the decisions. And I think what I felt when I joined Ringier, and I joined Ringier at the time in, so 2013, when a sixth generation member of the family, Robin Ling, whose mother is Evelyn Ling who is, uh, would be fifth generation ownership of the company, um, joined the company, so Robin joined the company met me in Nigeria, and then we really decided to, so to say, work together in Africa on this African project. So it wasn't really a feeling of, you know, joining a, a big corporate through a, you know, through a normal, so to say, interview onboarding process, but much more the feeling of, OK, we have the chance here to do something great in Africa. That on yeah. one side
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and would you say that you shared the same vision and that's why ultimately you decided to join?
2: I really felt that, you know, at the time when I looked at the ecosystem, I felt that the strengths that uh, Ringye as a corporate in media and classified space had was definitely things that could be brought with the according investment. As well as with local partners, local staff, local founders, local editorial team, which of course is very important when it comes to content to really have a local, you know, media and voice and really independent local voice that isn't led from international that with investment and the skills that Ringier had, you know, acquired through becoming a digital company itself in the past, you know, 10 years and spending a lot of money on becoming a digital company, that a lot of those could be used on the continent. So Mm -hmm. it was kind of like a, so to say, objective assessment of the fact that Ringier could do a great job on the continent if it used kind of the tools that it had really acquired over the past years uh, to do so.
0: Mm, Okay, got it. And I really want to focus kind of on the media aspect. As you kind of mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Ringier owns the Pulse media brand in Nigeria, Ghana, and Kenya. And... Mm -hmm. You know, it syndicates content from Business Insider, which is like really taken off in the U.S. and other markets, and also publishes its own content. And I'm curious to know, what are the number of users?
2: So what we count with Pulse across markets, because we are a new media publisher, meaning we have our own Website as you named Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, and also Uganda. But we also have a lot of social media representation. So we run some of the biggest Instagram, Facebook accounts in those markets. And so what we really count and what we really go after is um, essentially our total reach across those countries. And we calculate our total reach across the countries every month. And we're now at a total reach across markets last month. So that would be July of 169 million people.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a pretty broad reach. Yeah. And what are some interesting market insights in Africa's digital media space that you can share?
2: So what what we have seen to take off extremely is video. So any, I think, any media player, any company that's looking at marketing, I would always advise to look at video as a big thing. Yeah, everybody is watching video, even if there may be data challenges, if it needs to be downloaded from a Wi-Fi point, if the last, so to say, Kobo in Nigeria is being spent it's spent on video. I think video is a huge phenomenon. Pulse has done last month also. So again, big reach on the user part. We did about 170 million views across our platforms on video. So 170 million unique video views last month. And so this is something that as a trend that we're seeing grow extremely fast specifically on platforms like Instagram which is hugely growing across the continent which is one of the it's globally a big phenomenon on Instagram Africa is not far behind i would say that in africa kind of as the basics obviously mobile is the growth factor with obviously a lot of you know mobile phones being shipped into the continent being sold on the continent, specifically from China. I think improving internet speed and uh, lower internet costs are driving consumption as well. What we're seeing at Pulse is, we have kind of experienced at Pulse, is that although we have a Pan-African brand, we still very much believe in national platforms driven by local editorial teams. So to really build love brands that are trusted with editors that are known, Yes, using the borderless internet connections and the fact that the same technical platforms can be used. But if you would ask some Nigerians whether they know that we also run PulseLive.co.ke in Kenya, many of them wouldn't necessarily know. I think, so our belief that, you know, specifically mass media platforms um, built on the strength of the editors and the editorial you know, independence within these markets and kind of national markets first and foremost, I think is there because we still see in the consumption, people are very much first interested in what's happening around them, what's happening in their market, and then obviously what's happening internationally, but local content rules, which maybe this is one message I would say to anybody that's interested in this space, is obviously a big opportunity for local entrepreneurs In the content and media sectors and what I mean by this is um, local content can't be produced out of a newsroom from London at least not consistently and not with really the ear on the ground so I think this is a big opportunity when it comes to local content creators that may use international platforms like YouTube and Co but the first interest that people have in consumption is very much local content so I very much believe that the biggest YouTubers for Africa are going to come out of Africa. The biggest Instagram stars for Africa are going to come out of Africa and actually even more so out of the single market. So to really have great content producers out of the markets and they will be taken up by the more growing and growing user demand out of those markets. I think this is a big opportunity for uh, creatives. Uh, media producers, journalists that are based on the African continent in the different countries.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, it's all about local content, building localized, strong local editorial team.
2: That's it. Absolutely. That's the only way in my mind. I think there are, you know, platforms that are pan-African. I think business model, I think, to really reach the big populations in the countries, I think a focus locally and nationally is important.
0: Mm. And which media startups do you find to be really exciting and compelling in sub-Saharan Africa?
2: I like, obviously, startups that are a little bit challenging the status quo of the big platforms. So I can name a uh, startup of my good friend Jason Joku, who does Iroko TV, which is more in the film sector. So movies, Nollywood, kind of taking this local content again, this mastery of local content... Combining it with cutting edge international technology and distributing that globally as well as on the continent. I think it's a great example for a bold move building on local content. I think there are, there are startups in the local media sector that are, you know, using the power of the internet to reach similar to Pulse Dust is to reach many, many, many people, which through physical distribution would would be prohibitively expensive. So companies in Nigeria, to name great companies, are companies like Bella Niger, focused on somewhat of the female audience with weddings and obviously career development and many other things kind of on the female side. I think countless other examples of companies coming out of those regions focusing on digital as a great tool for distribution, which makes it much cheaper to get content to the people than it was when it was about investing into printing plants, which Ringier was doing, you know, 50 years ago, maybe, but mm-hmm. which isn't really necessary nor sensible on the African continent.
0: And so do African digital media platforms like you just cited, like Bella Nija, do they really have to depend on advertising revenue? in their business model?
2: They do. So I think that have not seen... So I think the when it comes to movies, when it comes to music, I think there are uh, business models like the Iroko TV one, which is based obviously on subscriptions. When it comes to media, so kind of daily news, daily content, daily entertainment, etc., what we have seen as the most promising is to say, with this content, through the internet, we are reaching many, 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 many people that weren't engaged through content before, that weren't engaged through newspapers before. Um, so millions of people where newspapers were reaching much fewer people. And for companies to come along on their journey of storytelling, of being presented, in native advertisement, in video, in content production that's being done for them and distributed through these channels, That has shown for us, at least, to be a a good way of market development. Of course, we're always interested in, so to say, new and creative ways of revenue in media. I think this is actually a global phenomenon. The difference a little bit in Africa for us and for other companies that have gone into Africa is that we didn't first start with the printing, but immediately went with business models that make sense for the digital and social and mobile reality. So for us, this is working very well.
0: Mm. Well, and I want to switch the conversation to focus, you know, back on you. And I'd love to know what has been your biggest failure as an entrepreneur and what did you learn from it?
2: I think that at the time, it definitely felt as a failure to not fully understand, so to say, where the e-commerce market, you know, was going in Nigeria, looking at You know, going deeper into different verticals when it comes to an investment perspective. So it's a bit questionable if this is, so to say, entrepreneurship, but definitely working on solutions that were going into different e commerce verticals at the time, which was, you know, a couple of years ago. And this was Um,
0: your time at Startup Partners?
2: Correct. I think this was definitely, yes, investment into those companies. um, Where I think the know, biggest learning is to also be honest with yourself, to understand when something isn't going, so to say, in the right way, and then also pivoting or changing strategy, changing what is being invested in, potentially revisit uh, certain ideas and certain decisions, because in the end, this is and was somewhat about market timing, which obviously is a often stated fact that market timing is very, very important. But also to, you know, it's easier said afterwards, so to say, that you were wrong or in the moment actually that you're wrong about market timing, that saying this as a a positive attribute to be right on timing. So I think to know when you're wrong about timing, I think is a big learning on this one.
0: Would you say that Nigeria isn't quite ready for e-commerce, that there isn't enough to demand to really justify a lot of e-commerce businesses?
2: I think that what we have seen with the growth of the industries that are supporting e-commerce, so be it payments
0: yeah,
2: Paystack, yeah. Paystack, <laughs> which obviously just got funded. Other companies in this space. Then when you look at credit companies that are using mobile phones, so Paylater, for example, is to be named here, which is a credit startup out of Nigeria, which has about uh, you know a million downloads now. Which is using the data of mobile phones, of the usage of mobile phones that has grown in the past years to um, uh, distribute credit to, to people in a very, very efficient way, which is a pure online but transactional business model because actually money changes hands, not like media, potentially non physical marketplaces where it's often also more the transaction that then happens on the phone or by a message. Those business models like credit and others are actually using transactional business models online, again, grown by those supporting systems, which is in this case payments and other things, and the physical e-commerce being supported by Again, logistics startups that are coming up and other kind of ecosystem building phenomenon um, that is happening. That's happened in the last years. The other thing that's happened in the last years is that people have obviously grown more used to the usage of the internet. So it has been around for longer for more people. So the trust is definitely increasing. So I would say that I definitely would say that Physical e-commerce, as I said, that at the time when we were investing in some physical e-commerce startups, we were very early. But I think that the trends now are very much going to transactional business models. Yes, first online, but then also through much of the support that's happening also offline is definitely growing. If the question is um, how big, so to say, that market is already, I think that's a question that is very hard to answer. I think um, some of the obviously public Jumia gross merchandise value numbers, which I think put Jumia at something like half a billion dollars of gross merchandise value last year for all of Africa, where obviously Nigeria plays a big role, I think can speak to that. So I think it's definitely a very much a growing sector with a lot of challenges still, but there are trends that are speaking, so to say, for it.
0: Mm, okay. So you remain positive.
2: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely positive about the growth. And um, again, when you look at companies like PayStack, which are to some extent an aggregation of what's happening in the transactional online sector.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: There's a big growth. If the single, I think the question is often is the single company going to make it? Is the sing, does the single company have a sensible business model or not? I think that's a little bit the question. And, and that's uh, what often people, so to say, get wrong is that maybe their business model isn't the greatest one, which again was maybe my experience in the past as well.
0: Mm, okay. And which books have left an impression on you? You know, what resources can you share with our audience?
2: So I would say if I name one, like specific one, I would say as a somewhat of a must read for entrepreneurs is Elon Musk's biography, not autobiography, but biography, which then was also shared with him, which I think has a subtitle, Tesla's SpaceX and the quest for the future or so, or something like this is New York Times bestseller. I think the author is Ashley Vange. I don't know whether I just destroyed uh, that name, but that's a great book because what I took away from it the most is this tenacity of learning that Elon Musk has and many other entrepreneurs has to uh, the tenacity of learning, the tenacity of sticking it out also in very difficult times, putting, so to say, the own money on the line, even if that's not always as much money as Elon Musk has put on the line, but essentially kind of this entrepreneurial spirit of perseverance. But resilience. Also very yep. resilience, exactly. and uh, But also, very much on a high level, you know, bringing together, so to say, the smarts with the tenacity and the sticking it out. You know, also being able to pivot where necessary, changing things where necessary, but always, you know, uh, continuing to go for it. This is a book that I would 100% recommend for starting entrepreneurs to read and get inspired by.
0: Mm. And if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring entrepreneur in Sub-Saharan Africa, what would it be?
2: Be in it for the long run, I think, is the inspiring advice. Why? Because I think that the trends are very much in you know the favor of the entrepreneur, um, although the short-term difficulties might be there. And um, if... You see the long-term vision for you know industry-changing trends that are still possible on the continent. Yeah, I think you know when you look at Ringier building and investing in startups, we are still able. Yeah, we were still able to build very much kind of leading media companies on the continent, leading marketplaces on the continent in kind of 2012 and later. I think there are many industries where if you're in it for the long run. You can very much change a lot of things. So this advice of being in it for the long run and not seeing necessarily only the short term difficulties is what I would advise.
0: If you could take a one year sabbatical from Ringier and go anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why?
2: So I'm already in Nigeria. I think that <laughs> Nigeria <laughs> is a fantastic market because it's obviously a huge national market with lots of facets. You know, we're often talking about Lagos, but there are so many places and so many opportunities in Nigeria alone that I think that's a fascinating market that I would advise anybody to come to. Mm. I think uh, very different markets are interesting. I think Ethiopia is very different. I think Ethiopia, mm-hmm. there's a lot happening. Yeah. But where
0: would you go if there were one place where you could go and set up shop and and really to learn kind of with the objective being to learn and improve the business where would you go
2: Probably Addis so Addis Ababa in Ethiopia Just because I've already been in Lagos. (laughs) But if I could say Lagos, I would say Lagos, because I think there's still so much more to learn from Nigeria. Yeah. If there was, so to say, another place, you know, having been here, I would say Addis, because Ethiopia, there's a lot happening. I think there's a lot of interest to open up the economy, specifically on the digital side, a lot of opportunity that's being seen there by the government. It's obviously a huge market, and it's very different from other places around Africa. So that's why I would choose Addis. And it's also a beautiful place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That I agree with. Well, Leo, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is really great.
1: Thank you so much, Victoria, for having me. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at Podcast. You can also visit YAEPodcast.com For show notes, resources, and information on today's episode, that's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.